Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Good morning. Another beautiful Saturday morning here on May the 24th. This is John Pielli, the past ball show, coming at you for the next two hours. ton of stuff that I want to get into. Of course, we have some interviews, which we're going to play like we normally do. But amongst the topics that I want to hit up on are the two top pitchers in the National League right now. Um, a great story about a pitcher, a journeyman pitcher who has spent several different seasons with several teams kind of emerging on the scene. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about Ty Cobb and one day where his teammates stood up for him. And if you remember the Ty Cobb story and the things in regards to Ty Cobb, you know that he was not a very well-liked man, uh, whether it was his teammates, whether it was the opposition, the fans. But his teammates stood out for him on one very important day in 1912, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. I'm also going to talk a little bit about um, Tommy John surgery. And we've touched on it a bunch of times here on the Passball Show, as well as really any other program you listen to that talks about baseball, the phenomenon, and why uh, so many pitchers are having it right now. And what I'm going to propose is not the answer or not the solution but a lot of small things that really aren't being done or may or may not be done to prevent uh, this type of thing from becoming a mandatory thing where all pitchers end up having to have this operation. And you could talk really about any team, of course, any team in baseball. You could talk about what pitchers had the operation or sitting out and waiting to come back from the operation. So we're going to touch on that a little later. But just a reminder, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. We'll keep the program interactive like we always do. Uh, I've had some really good tweets over the last couple weeks. Uh, keep them going. And, uh, you know, if we can get a decent enough pace, I'll start to share them uh, week to week. Uh, the best tweets of the week before, I'll share them the following week. But we're going to start off by playing an interview I recorded with a pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies in the early part of the 1960s. And his name is Art Mahaffey, and Art was part of the 1964 Phillies. With Gene Mock as the manager, ended up losing that uh, tremendous lead they had towards the end of September. And, of course, the pennant to the St. Louis Cardinals, who ended up winning a World Series that year. 
And you'll find out, and Art will be the first to tell you, he pitched the two best games of that 10-game losing streak they had towards the end of the season when they ended up uh, coughing away that lead. But, uh, you know, Mahaffey had a very good run for the Phillies over the course of about four or five seasons, and his arm ended up giving out. But uh, I'm going to pretty much let him tell the story. Uh, great chance to speak with Art Mahaffey, and we get in a lot of great stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Philadelphia Phillies pitcher and St. Louis Cardinal pitcher, Art Mahaffey. Good morning, this is John Fialli, and I'm happy to be joined by a pitcher to pitch for the Philadelphia Phillies and for, for really the first half of the 1960s, and that's Art Mahaffey. Art, John Fialli over in New Jersey. I appreciate you having a couple minutes. Hey John, it's nice to talk to you. All right, all right. Um, you know, you went to high school over in in Cincinnati. Um, was was that that the first time you played baseball, or had you played played baseball prior to high school as a kid? Well, I played uh, since I could walk. My father took me out every night and on weekends, and he was really something in my life. I mean, on weekends we packed lunches and we'd go to the baseball park all Saturday and Sunday. And he'd hit me ground balls and fly balls, and we, you know, that's how I started. Then I played in uh, Little Leagues, and then the Babe Ruth League, the first year of the Babe Ruth League was called the Little Bigger League. They didn't know what to name it. And then the next year, Babe Ruth's wife uh, said they could use his name for the Babe Ruth League. So I see in some magazines, and I didn't know this, that I'm the first pitcher that played in the Babe Ruth League to pitch in the, pitch in the big leagues. Wow. So, and then high school, I beat Rose with the, my same high school and 11 other players that made the big leagues. So, it was quite a baseball city, Cincinnati. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're, you know, when you're growing up, I mean, is it, that was your dream to, to be a professional baseball player, right? That's all I could think about. That's all I did. And, we had such a team that won the state championship 17 straight years in in Cincinnati. And during the winter time, the guys on the baseball team had to come in the gym at 5:30 in the morning and uh, practice before school. Like I would pitch in the gym during the winter. And at 5:30 in the morning, there's no buses running, and I used to have to run a mile and a half to school every morning at that time. Yeah, just just to work out and uh, to just you know to throw the throw the baseball and then you had school. Did you have practice afterwards too? We practiced. Uh, we practiced every day, seven days a week, and we had five games a week. Wow! And that's Cal High School and Legion ball. And uh, Cincinnati had a famous Legion team, Bentley Post, and you couldn't have a summer job. You couldn't do anything if you wanted to play for the. You know, baseball, you had to do this. So we, none of the guys on the team had a little job to make some money. Now, once again, John Pialli here with Art Mahaffey. Now, when you know when you're you're at that age and you're playing all this baseball, you're 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 probably playing other positions too, right? You're not just pitching. Right, I played third base when I didn't pitch, and this sounds crazy, but in high school, my senior year, my batting average was 713. <laughs> wow, <laughs> unbelievable. See, when you're in, if you're the pitcher in high school, back in those days, you were the biggest guy. You could throw the hardest, run the fastest, and hit the best. And uh, that's not me talking about myself, but that's the way that it was. You did everything. So when I didn't pitch, I played third base, and uh, and uh, 
Yeah, we play. I play it all the time. All right. So, all right. When you know, after you're done playing high school, you, you end up getting to a point where obviously you're going to start to see scouts, and you know, guys want to see want to see you pitch and play, and are you know, you can probably think in your own head that hey, maybe there's a there's a chance I could sign a, a professional contract. Um, what's going through your mind at that time? Did you notice a lot of scouts watching you play? Well, the scouts, because our team was so good and so famous in Cincinnati, the scouts, two and three and four scouts, were, were at most of our games. And the one big thing is we had a pitcher named Dick Drott, D-R-O-T-T. He signed with the Cubs, I believe, and, and I know in the big leagues he struck out 15 against Milwaukee one day. He didn't have a very long career, but... but Scouts came to see him. He was a senior and I was a sophomore, or a freshman. And he wasn't feeling good sick that day, and I pitched, and I pitched like a one-hit shot out and struck out everybody and hit a home run, and I did all kinds of things. <laughs> and from there on, they came to see me. So, yeah, I knew that when I got out of high school, I could sign with somebody. It was just a matter of what team, because there were several teams wanting me to sign with them. All right, now what, what, so I'll follow that up with what led you to sign with the Phillies? You know, there's, there's other offers, you chose, you chose the Phillies, was it, was it money-based or was it uh, something you felt maybe had been a best opportunity for you? Well, it wasn't money-based because Pittsburgh offered me $60,000 bonus to sign and, and my family was poor and my dad and back in those days, if you signed a bonus contract for over $4,000, you had to go sit on the bench of a big league team on the roster for a year or two. And none of those guys ever got to play. And then guys were having to go to the service, and so that was two to six years out of their lives before they could start really playing ball. But I wanted to sign with the Yankees. They, they were my... I could have signed with them. I could have signed with Pittsburgh. I could have signed with Chicago. Everything. You don't know what to do. But I really thought I could make it. My father thought I could make it. I didn't take the bonus from Pittsburgh, and I took the $4,000. The Phillies tell you if you sign with the Yankees, you'll never get to the big leagues. They win the Pennant World Series every year. You sign with them, you can forget being in the big leagues. And they scare you not to sign with the Yankees. Like in those days, Mickey Mantle was a center fielder. If you were a center fielder, you wouldn't sign with the Yankees minor league organization because you didn't have a spot to go to the big leagues. Yeah, of course. So I, uh, the Phillies said, well, we're in last place. We need pitching and we need this. And... You sign with us, you'll get up to the big leagues really fast. So it turned out I signed with the Phillies, and they had the top eight or nine minor league pitchers in baseball. <laughs> and I had to go past all them before I got to the big leagues. But that's how I ended up with the Phillies. 
Once again, John Fialli here with former Major League pitcher Art Mahaffey. Now, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your time in the minors because, uh, you know, there were some ups and downs up until you, you eventually made your Major League debut in 1960. But, you know, tell us a little bit about your experience. Did you feel like it was, uh, it was a big adjustment, you know, going to start a pitch professionally? Was there anything you had to do differently or learn at the professional level? Well, never really had any coaches, but if you can throw hard, you were a pitcher and, and, and you did your thing. But when you went to a class, a D minor league team, which was the lowest, and that's where they sent you, every one of those guys was a, came from somewhere else in the United States and was at the best in their city in their high school. So pro ball was really pro ball back then. Now kids go out of college right to the big leagues. College could never match what a minor league. Minor league was the real deal. Traveling and playing ball every day and dedicate your life to it, you know? So I started in B and went to C, B, A. We had no double-A team, triple-A. Dominican Republic in the wet and, and winter teams and... and until I finally got to the big leagues. So it seemed like it was forever, and it was 40 years, but it just seemed like you would never make it, no matter what you did or how many games you won. But, uh, it was a minor league baseball was professional. It, you know, every guy was a professional ball player. Now, did this add to the, to the satisfaction once you, you made the major leagues in 1960? Now that you're finally here, you, you felt like you kind of uh, paid your dues a little bit, and now, now, now it was time? Yeah, and then some of the guys, uh, when you came up then, they had come up out of the minor leagues with different teams, and like some of the guys you had pitched against in the minor leagues, and you knew some of them, but still going to the big leagues was unreal. <clears throat> But I had one thing I could say, and this is a, in B and C, I had never pitched a shutout. And every pitcher would like to pitch some shutouts. And I went to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I was a 500 pitcher before then. And one day I lived behind the park, and... I woke up late and it was 15 minutes till game time and I ran to the park. Ran in, got dressed, already warmed up and pitched a shutout and hit a home run or something. And in my brain I said, wow, if I can do that, and I ended up at 8-0 with Williamsport. I just started winning every game. So I went to AAA and started winning and I just started winning. And that one, that one game changed my whole Total attitude of making it to the big leagues, and I thought I was going to make it. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Once again, John Pialli here with Art Mahaffey. Now, as you as you were coming up through the minors, uh, you know, it looks like based on the numbers that you know, yeah, you, you walked you know, quite quite a bit. But over time, it was something that you seemed to get a hold of. Well, what do you think was the best the, the best thing or maybe the best thing that you worked on or maybe got help with or developed over time that helped you better command your control as a young pitcher? Well, believe it or not, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know how many I walked. I didn't think I had better control. But if you remember, when you get to the big leagues, the umpires are better too, John. Yeah. And uh, the, the umpires in the minor leagues, God bless them, and they tried, and they were 
they were good and working to get to the big leagues too, but they had to learn too. Okay. And you have a lot of pitches you threw. You, you wouldn't believe where they were. They were strikes and they were called balls. Mm -hmm. so everything's different in the minor leagues. When you get to the big leagues, it was just totally different. And I felt confident right the first day in the big leagues. And, and uh, I had several games where I didn't walk anybody in the big leagues. And once again, John Pielli here with Art Mahaffey. Now, the one thing that stands out from really from your first uh, from your first experience in the big leagues was your pickoff move. You're you're known very well for, especially for a right hand pitcher to be able to get the ball to first and you know, you know pick guys off base. Uh, was that something that you took pride in? And how did you learn your pickoff move? Well, it took pride in it because it was so unique. And, you know, as you see in the records or whatever, you know, when I came up to St. Louis, uh, I pitched two innings in relief, and Kurt Floyd singled, I picked him off. Bill White singled, and I picked him off. Then I started against San Francisco, and the first guy got on base against them, I picked him off. It was a move that I could just do. Nobody else could do it. And I know what's funny is I room with Robin Roberts my first year, and Robbie said, trying to teach me that pickoff move. <laughs> <laughs> but I kept my I talked to Maury Wills and some hitters in the big leagues. I picked a lot of guys off in the big leagues. I won a lot of games, helped me win games, because we didn't win too many games back then. But Maury Wills and some guys told me that they watched the pitcher's back foot on the rubber. And when he, they lifted that to throw the first, they, start, they took off for second. But I kept my foot on the rubber, which means I had to twist my whole body to throw. And I could do that. And Robbie, he, Robbie tried it, and he said, no, I'll just pull my whole back out of place if I said that. <laughs> so he didn't do it. He didn't, try, he didn't try it anymore. It was just something I could do. Now, how how old were you when you when you learned to pick off move? Was that something that you learned in high school, or maybe in the minors, or even before that? No, I didn't learn it. I just did it. Uh, it was just something that you just had naturally from day one. I just the guys at Pittsburgh, Bill Harden, different guys would lead off with a hit. I'd pick them off first. I remember one game, Harden led off with a single, and the, the third base coach and Danny Murtell yelled out. Now, you know, in 61 and 62, you end up making the all-star team both seasons. 
um, probably a good feeling to be that young, 23, 24 years old, and being out, out there pitching and playing with the, the greats of the whole game. John Pielli here with Dar Mahaffey. The last question I have to ask you, um, and I'm going to word this in the best way possible. What are what comes to mind of Art Mahaffey when the 1964 Philly season is mentioned? Well, naturally, the first game of the 10-game losing streak, I lost one to nothing when uh, Chico Ruiz stole home with yeah. Frank Robinson hitting and two strikes and two outs with Frank Robinson hitting. If I throw a strike and Robinson swings the bat, he knocks his head off coming in. It was such a stupid play. In other words, nobody steals home with a right-hander hitting and two strikes on the right-hander. Yeah, especially if he doesn't know it's, he doesn't know he's coming. Well, he wouldn't do it because if he throw a strike, the guy swings the bat and hits him in the head and kills him. Yeah, so it was that crazy and stupid play that uh, Fred Hutchison, who was sick then but in the stands, he was the manager of the Red, said that if he hadn't have made it, that he would never play them another game. It was that stupid. And uh, actually, as I'm throwing, it was so timed perfect, he doesn't know. Ruiz never knew it was timed that perfect. But he... Uh, out of the corner of my eyes, I'm ready to let go of the ball. I see him running home, and I, I threw the pitch wide and bed. Just automatically, it's my brain couldn't believe it, I guess. And left one to nothing. And then the sixth game, I was winning four to one in the sixth inning when I got taken out. And uh, the game was still, I was still winning six to four, I mean, uh, four to two in the ninth inning. And uh, Rico Cardi hit a triple, triple clear to bases, and we lost the game. But I can always remember that I did really pitch the two best games in that ten games. And it's a shame, and I didn't get a win, and nor did the team get a win, and we didn't get to the World Series. But, but we, you know, we were standing in a row, and we just couldn't win a game. Yeah, now all, all these years later, that season's probably something that still kind of wears on you a little bit, right? The way, the way it ended, you know, the fact that the Phillies did have such a big lead and they seemed destined for the pennant that season. Or, you know, the, we had a six-and-a-half game lead with 12 games to play, and there were no playoffs. We lost 10. Cincinnati and St. Louis won 10 in a row. How could a schedule even be that way that that could happen? Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Everything was wrong. Every, everything happened. I know before the 10-game losing streak, uh, Dennis Bennett or Ray Kopp, one or the other, I don't remember who, which one, threw a wild pitch in the extra innings in another city and, and uh, lost the game by a run. And uh, 
just everything went wrong at the end of the season. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a shame. Uh, you know, and of course, so, you know, for such a, a team that was so talented, and had such a good team, you know, to not be able to make the playoffs that year is something that you know, and like you said, the way that it ended up turning out, it just seemed like everything went wrong. Um, you know, going back on your well, not by the way, one thing you just said, John, there were no such things chaos. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I I I. I no, nah, you're right. I, I knew that. I just came out of my mouth wrong, so I apologize for that. But all right, just uh, before I let you go, going back your your entire career pitching professionally, is there one moment that stood out that you look back on and you're like, hey, you know, I'm glad I accomplished that, or I remember that game, or you know, is is there any anything that kind of comes to your mind when I say that? Well, you know, I had the 17 strikeouts in Phillies record yet, and when I had them, there was no expansion. And I remember the write-ups in the article said that Bob Feller and Sandy Koufax had 18 strikeouts in a in a day in a uh, night game, and mine was a day game, and me and Dizzy Dean had 17 in a day game, and that was it in 70. The headline said in the 75 years of baseball. Wow. So in other words, a couple things just, I won two opening day games. I did some things, had 19 wins, but one thing that really sticks out in my mind, I came up to the big leagues and I, I pitched those two innings in St. Louis, and then we went home against San Francisco, had a two-hit shutout in the eighth inning, went in three to nothing, and Willie Mays hit a swinging butt, and Gene Locke took me out. <laughs> I don't know why, he liked to take you out. And uh, Dick Farrell came in, gave us six or seven runs, and we came back and we won the game eight to seven, and I didn't win. But the thing I'm leading up to quick is for is we went on a 24-game road trip after that game. And we won six games and lost 18 games. And I was five and up. The rest of the pitching staff was one and 18. So... That was like an unbelievable thrill to be able to do that and come back to Philadelphia 5-0 and and, uh, and to do that on a 24-game road trip. In those days, you took long road trips. Yeah, of a couple of days off, that was a month away. And I had all the wins. So that was, that was a really a big thrill, John. Hey, no question, Art, and I tell you, that's the definition of a stopper right there. I mean, I'm sure you know many times during that during that uh, road trip, uh, you were you were pitching on a three, four game losing streak sometimes, and to come out there and be able to win every time is certainly something that you should carry with you forever and be proud of. Yeah, the first game started in Fort Field, Pittsburgh, and ended there. And they won the pennant that year, and that, I was the only pitcher who won two games in Forbes Field that year. So a lot of things. When I hurt my arm, I just wasn't really any good anymore. I had five different injuries and pitched the last two and a half years with a torn rotator cuff, broken right ankle, fractured left elbow, a broken orbital bone in my eye, and everything you can think of, and pitched that way. So those last two and a half years, they just weren't the same as the first years. Yeah, all right, you, you let me into something I got to ask you before I let you go. You know, you could be, you pitched obviously a while ago, and the, the medical technology probably wasn't 
to the standard at what it what it is today. Do you think you could have come back and had a couple more years if you pitched in, let's say, an era like now with the, the you know the medical education and the technology? Well, I pitched. The last two and a half years, I pushed pitch with a torn rotator cuff and every muscle in my shoulder torn. I couldn't lift a cup of coffee and I couldn't drive the car with my right hand. Wow. And I pitched. And I pitched with a tendon that went up underneath my ankle bone, snapped over my ankle bone and went up my leg. And was pushed back and taped up. And... But with the rotator cuff, they didn't know about rotator cuff operations then. And for a week, I stayed with Dr. Curlin and Middleman in St. Louis for one week, checking my arm. And at the end of the week, they said, well, you just got a sore shoulder. You got to work it out. But for anybody listening to you who had a torn rotator cuff, and anybody ever tells you, tell them how... Do they think they could pitch in the big leagues with that time? Because you can't do anything. So, uh, yeah, if they could have... Kurt Schilling, when he was in Atlanta, he had a sore shoulder or something. He had an operation and he went on to be a hero and do all kinds of things, didn't he? Yeah, of course. Tommy John had that operation, the first one. But they didn't know about that, and you just pitch with your injuries, and you just kept making them worse and worse and worse. And the only other thing while we're talking quick is if they had Nautilus machines back then, I would have never torn my rotator cuff, I don't think. You don't think so? No. Nope. I think with the different exercises the guys do with Nautilus machines now, that would have stopped. I had the sore shoulder and the knot in my shoulder that could have worked out. And they didn't even know how to work a knot out of your shoulder. But now, after having it operated on, after quitting baseball and using Nautilus machines, my arm is just wonderful anymore at my age. Yeah, maybe, maybe come back and pitch. <laughs> yeah, and make some money, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. On that note, I really appreciate you giving me the time, Art. A lot of, a lot of nice stories, and great to get a chance to hear from you. Okay, John, and thanks a lot. There goes Art Mahaffey. Big thanks to him for joining the program today. We're going to do is take a quick break. A reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. We keep the program interactive. And, of course, don't forget to check out my articles on johnpielli.com. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into a couple things. We'll start talking about the, the top two pitchers in the National League and then the pitcher in the American League that has been a great story um, certainly he's found his place as a starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. We'll be right back after this. I always wanted to work in sports. Kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, 
DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We've placed thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Case is empty vlog. Go ahead, laugh, laugh all you want, but the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Case is empty vlog. Case is empty vlog. Case is empty vlog. Case is empty vlog. Base is empty block. Welcome back, John Pielli Passball Show, right here. Of course, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Um, I want to get into a couple interesting things because you talk about the best pitchers in baseball, and of course, the Clayton Kershaw has come to mind, and Justin Verlander, and guys like that, King Felix. And you think of the top pitchers in the whole game, and of course, Matt Harvey last year with the Mets. But a couple pitchers have stood out this year, and one of them has never really been looked at as an elite pitcher, and the other one has been an all-star before and has won 19 games, but was never even looked at as the top pitcher on his own pitching staff. And you're looking at two pitchers in both Cincinnati and in Chicago that have really dominated this year. And I'm going to start out by talking about Johnny Cueto a little bit. And, you know, his numbers really tell the story. Forget about wins. We can talk about kill the win later, which I'll get into when I talk about the other pitcher. But a guy is pitching to a 186 ERA in 10 starts. He has three complete games, two shutouts. In 77 and a third innings, he has struck out 82 and has a .737 whip and has given up just 4.5 hits per nine innings, which is ridiculous to this point in the season. And the one thing that stands out about Cueto is the fact that he's pitched 77 and a third innings. And you say, hey, innings pitched, yeah, yada, yada, yada. If he leads the league in innings pitched, who cares? But in 10 starts, that comes out to 7.7 innings per start. Which, in other words, Johnny Cueto, every time he goes out there for the Cincinnati Reds, is averaging seven and two-thirds innings. So that's a little bit short of eight innings to start, start in and start out. And obviously what's ridiculous about that is you look at these stats and how well he is pitched, and you realize he's only four and three. 
And here's a guy that has had some good years before. We talked about the 19-win season of 2012. Um, this guy's won almost 70 games in his career. He, he's been a very good strikeout pitcher, maybe not to the level of this year. He had 170 strikeouts in his 217 innings in his 19-win season of 2012. And, of course, last year was shortened because of some injuries. But I'd be pressed to name another pitcher in baseball that has done what Johnny Cueto has done this season. And if you look at him, start to start, we'll start out with his first game of the season, which was March 31st against the Cardinals. He lost one nothing, gave up one run in seven innings. He followed that up by giving up two runs in seven innings to the Mets in a loss. Uh, he didn't get the loss, but the Mets, uh, Mets ended up winning that game. April 11th against the Tampa Bay Rays, seven innings, two runs. The next start against the Pirates on April 16th, complete game shutout. Start after that against the Pirates, uh, complete game win. Um, he ends up getting the victory in there. He ends up even in his record at 2-2. Two and two. Then he throws eight shutout innings against the Braves. Eight innings, two runs against the Milwaukee Brewers. Eight innings, two runs against the Colorado Rockies. A complete game shutout against the San Diego Padres. And he ran into a little bit of a hiccup in his last start, giving up six earned runs in five and a third innings and a loss to the Washington Nationals. But uh, one, two, three, four, five, in six starts, he threw three complete games and went eight innings in three other games. And in fact, it wasn't until his last start, start number 10 against the Washington Nationals, where Cueto failed to go seven innings. He went five and a third, like I said, in the loss against the Washington Nationals. But three seven-inning games, three nine-inning games, and three eight-inning games through his first nine starts. And that's why he was averaging about eight innings a start. And he was averaging exactly eight innings per start until his last one against the Washington Nationals. But the bottom line is this guy has gone out there and not only competed, but has dominated. And I'll be pressed to say, at this moment in time, there isn't a better pitcher in baseball than Johnny Cueto. Does that mean that's always going to hold up? Does that mean that I would take Johnny Cueto over Clayton Kershaw? Or take Johnny Cueto over Justin Verlander or King Felix or Iwakuma or Yu Darvish or anybody else you could imagine? Cliff Lee, I'll throw as many names out there as possible. But uh, right now, you, know, you could say you probably would. Now, is Johnny Cueto going to sustain it? Over the course of a full season, I mean, he has won 19 games before, like I mentioned. But you know, here's a guy that is pitching out of his mind right now, and hopefully the the hiccup against the Washington Nationals wasn't a sign of things to come. But you know, he has looked so dominant in his starts, and to have only a four and three record is certainly injustice. But uh, going from injustice to the absolute obscene is the performance of Chicago Cubs right-hander Jeff Samarja. I mean, here's a guy that is just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, similar to Cueto, and maybe in some cases even better than Johnny Cueto, Jeff Samarja is dominating the National League. And, of course, in interleague play against the Yankees, he threw seven shutout innings in a game that the Yankees ended up coming back and winning in extra innings. But Jeff Samarja, let's get into the good first. He's thrown 68 innings. He's given up just 53 hits. He's pitching to a 1.088 whip. His 266 ERA plus leads all of Major League Baseball. Uh, here's a guy who's given up just two home runs, just 11 earned runs. 
for a 146 ERA, which also leads the National League in his 10 starts. Now, similar to Cueto, you look at the fact that Samarja is giving distance, and he is averaging really just under seven innings a start in his 68 innings and 10 starts. But here is the obscene part about it, and I'm sure everybody and their mothers talked about this already, but Jeff Samarja threw 10 starts at his 146 ERA and 266 ERA plus is zero and four. And that speaks obviously to the volume, to volumes over how bad the Chicago Cubs have been, not only offensively, but overall, this is a very bad baseball team. And Jeff Samarja and Travis Wood and Edwin Jackson are three very good starting pitchers, but they're not getting a lot of run support and they're not in a very good position to win a lot of games because the Chicago Cubs just simply do not score runs. And uh, Samarja has not, has not been aided by his defense as well. Uh, five runs have scored because of errors, so he's not really gotten the best defense in back of him. But still, that's no excuse to have an 0-4 record pitching to a 146 ERA. That certainly is not an indictment on the pitcher. It's an indictment on the Chicago Cubs and how bad they've been. And I'm going to go similarly to the way I went through with uh, Johnny Cueto's uh, lines through each one of his starts. And yeah, Jeff Samarja, in my opinion, has been just as good and in some cases better. Though not like Cueto, uh, Samarja has had two what would be hiccups. Uh, and that's failing failing to get six innings in a start. Samarja started off with seven shutout innings against the Pittsburgh Pirates in his first start. And then uh, went seven innings against the Phillies in his next start, gave up two runs. Seven innings against the Cardinals, gave up one run. Seven innings against the Reds, gave up three runs, but one earned. Remember, that was one of the games where his defense betrayed him in a loss. And then he went seven and a third innings against the Arizona Diamondbacks, giving up just two runs and a no decision. He followed that up with a little bit of a rough game against the Cincinnati Reds, where in five and two thirds innings, he gave up three runs, eight hits, four walks, and one of the two home runs that he's given up. So he got roughed up a little bit in that one, but he followed it up by uh, giving up one unearned run. The nine-inning performance against the Chicago White Sox, where he got a no decision, left when the game was 1-1, and the Cubs ended up losing that game. He followed that up six shutout innings against the Atlanta Braves in a game that the Braves would win two to nothing. And it followed that up with another one of his rough starts. And it's only two of them out of the 10 where he got beat up a little bit by the Milwaukee Brewers, two runs, I'm sorry, four runs, two earned giving up six hits and walking three and five innings against the Milwaukee Brewers in a four to three loss. And then of course he was on display against the Yankees throwing seven shutout innings and the Cubs took a 2-0 lead into the ninth inning. And, you know, from some shady defense and the first career-blown save for closer Hector Rondon, uh, they ended up, the Yankees ended up tying it in the bottom of the ninth in an extra innings and leaving himself with a 0-4 record and a ridiculous 146 ERA. And I tell you, if you look back in history, and you probably can, and I'm sure I'll have some more details available on JohnPLA.com if you want to check it out. But uh, you, you could see maybe, maybe going back to the 68 season when pitchers were so dominant and a lot of games were won and lost, won nothing. And even a guy like Bob Gibson, as great as he was in a 1.12 ERA, there were still some times that he was beaten. But I tell you, what's going on in Chicago is getting a little embarrassing uh, just to watch because you, you kind of feel bad. You certainly have to feel bad for a guy like Jeff Samarja, who has certainly pitched his ass off and really has put them in a position 
where they could have won just about any one of his starts. And here's a guy who is not a free agent until the 2016 season. And, uh, you know, is certainly going to be on the trading block. You heard a lot during the Yankees telecast of the game Samarja pitched against New York. Uh, that, that certainly the Yankees would be amongst the list of teams that were are going to be inquiring about the services of the former Notre Dame wide receiver. And of course, Samarja, if you remember, was a standout wide receiver at Notre Dame and ends up deciding to play baseball as a starting pitcher and seems to be the right decision. Here's a guy over the course of his career has, has put up some decent numbers and has done a pretty good job. And remember, right now is sitting there at just twenty at twenty nine years old, kind of entering what you would call the prime of his career, and you know has been a good pitcher at times. If you look back, this is his third year as a starting pitcher. He was a reliever in two thousand eleven, where he kind of stood out and made his first emergence. Was eight and four, two ninety seven ERA in seventy five games. Followed that up with 28 starts in 2012, where he went 9 and 13. And last year, in a career high of 33 starts, was 8 and 13, with a little bit of a higher ERA at 4.34. But he did have more strikeouts than innings pitched each of the last two seasons 214 Ks and 213 and two thirds innings in 2013, and 180 Ks and 174 and two thirds innings a year before in 2012. Uh, he doesn't have that same strikeout per inning pitched ratio this year. But what has worked for him, and I've said this off air to a couple people, is the fact that his sinker is being thrown by Samarja at the best that I've ever seen him throw it in his career. And that goes back to when he was a reliever or even back when he was in Notre Dame. And Jeff Samarja certainly has the ability to be a very good strikeout pitcher. But if he has his sinker going, he can be an absolute top starting pitcher in this game. Because the way his, the ball kind of moves down, and he has a, a real severe downward movement to his sinker, and especially on right-hand hitters, it makes it tough to do anything with other than slap it into the ground. And when Samarge is on, he's going to get a lot of ground ball outs. And you could add the fact that he's going to get some strikeouts too. And that certainly explains why he is pitching to a 146 ERA and mowing down just about everybody he's going up there and facing. And I think this is something that he could sustain course of a full major league season. And the unfortunate thing is, is that he is pitching for the Cubs. And I've said this before about pitchers that pitch for the New York Mets, uh, young pitchers like Rafael Montero and Jacob deGrom. And, you know, even what you've seen sometimes for some of the other pitchers, wasted performances because a team doesn't score. Uh, it certainly is true with the Chicago Cubs. And you hope for Jeff Samarge's sake that either a couple of the younger bats, which I've mentioned, guys like Javier Baez, Jorge Soler, Chris Bryant, uh, maybe a couple of those guys can make their major league debut soon and kind of give the team a little bit of the offense that it's looking for. And if that happens, then I think Samarja will start getting some more wins and will start uh, allowing his notoriety, not just based off of his ERA, but for being a winning pitcher and be the ace that he, I believe he was born to be. But, you know, it's unfortunate that Samarja has run into a lot of tough luck and things have not gone well for him. But staying on that level, once again, this is John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Next pitcher I'm going to talk about is a guy that you may not say is, has been the best pitcher in the American League, but he certainly has a great story in himself. And I'm talking about Oakland Athletics right-hand pitcher Jesse Chavez. And Jesse Chavez, if you're a fan of really any baseball team, you probably remember Chavez pitching for some team in relief over the course of the past five to seven seasons. He's a guy that's bounced around quite a bit, 
but has emerged this year in the Oakland Athletics rotation and obviously getting a spot just because of the injuries to Jared Parker and to A.J. Griffin. And with those two pitchers being out for the season, uh, Chavez got his chance and it, it has certainly taken advantage of it. Now, let me talk a little bit about what Chavez had done prior to this season, because before 2014, Chavez had made 191 big league appearances, just two as a starting pitcher. In his nine starts in 2014, he's 4-1 with a 254 ERA, 57 strikeouts, and 56 and two-thirds innings. He's also averaging over six innings a start, something that is very good due to pitchers' tendencies not to go deep into games. In what seemed to be a temporary situation where he would fill a spot until some reinforcements arrive, Chavez seems to have cemented his spot in the athletics of rotation. What is interesting about Jesse Chavez, and that's the fact that just about any team could have had him a couple seasons ago. The Toronto Blue Jays claimed him on waivers from the Atlanta Braves in 2011, and in August of 2012, he was acquired in a deal for cash by the Athletics from the Toronto Blue Jays. Chavez is not young by today's standards, and at age 30, has been around for quite a little while. In fact, he was originally drafted by the Chicago Cubs at age 18 in the 39th round of the 2001 draft, but did not sign. A year later, he was taken in the 42nd round by the Texas Rangers, where he chose to start his professional career. Chavez spent the next three-plus seasons in the minors in a Rangers system until he was traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates for right-hand pitcher Kip Wells. In 2008, he made his big league debut for the Pittsburgh Pirates, getting into 15 games as a reliever, but pitched to a 6.60 ERA. The next season, he pitched in 73 games for the Pirates, going 1-4, a 4.01 ERA, and striking out 47 batters in 67 and a third innings. After the 2009 season, Chavez was traded by the Pirates to the Tampa Bay Rays for infielder Akinori Iwamura. And that was a deal that, uh, you know, the Pirates never really saw much out of Iwamura. But a month later, Chavez was traded to the Braves in a deal for Rafael Soriano. So you see how the Reeves ended up making out. They trade Akinori Iwamura for Jesse Chavez, and they turned Jesse Chavez into Rafael Soriano. So it shows that Chavez had some promise, and teams did think pretty highly of him, you know, as well, you know, during that season. But... You know, unfortunately, he struggled in the Braves pen, pitching well 589 ERA in 28 games before he was traded to the Kansas City Royals for left hand, with left-hand pitcher Tim Collins and outfielder Gregor Blanco in a deal for outfielder Rick Ankiel and right-hand pitcher Kyle Farnsworth. He pitched to a 588 ERA in 23 games for the Royals for the rest of the 2010 season. He only got into four big league games in 2011. He pitched to a 10.57 ERA, spending the majority of the season in AAA Omaha, where he served as the team's closer, notching 16 saves in 45 games. It was the Toronto Blue Jays who toyed with using Chavez as a starting pitcher when they claimed him on waivers after the 2011 season. At that point, Chavez had not been used as a starting pitcher since the 2004 season and had made only one start in the minors in the past eight years, and that was 2007 in a Pirates organization. But Chavez pitched in 19 games, made 17 starts for AAA Las Vegas, going 8-5 with a 398 ERA, with an increased strikeout-to-walk rate at 86 Ks and 95 innings. It's also noted that Las Vegas has notoriously been a hitter-friendly ballpark, so it was good to see Chavez putting up some good numbers as a starter. 
Uh, he would later appear in nine games for the Jays, starting two of them, but pitched to an 8.55 ERA. That was when the Athletics acquired him in a deal for cash and pitched him in two games, one start for AAA Sacramento. Chavez appeared in four games for the Athletics, but once again did not fare well, giving up seven earned runs in just three and a third innings. So 2013 comes. Chavez enjoys a little bit of a resurgence, getting into 35 games in relief for the Athletics, going two and four with a 3.92 ERA with 55 Ks and 57 and a third innings. On June 13th of that season, he kind of had a coming out party in an extra inning game against the New York Yankees. Perhaps this was a sign of things to come, but Chavez entered the game with one out in the 12th inning. He proceeded to pitch a total of five and two-thirds innings of scoreless relief for the Athletics and got the win in that 18-inning game. Chavez was a help to the Athletics bullpen for the rest of the season, though he did not factor in their postseason series against the Detroit Tigers. The much-traveled Chavez was given a chance to make the Athletics rotation, like I said before, due to the loss of right-hand pitchers Jared Parker and A.J. Griffin. He earned it because he was stretched out over the past couple seasons. But let's be honest, in spite of Chavez working out as a starting pitcher over the past couple seasons, him being the number five starter in the Oakland Athletics rotation was only supposed to be a temporary situation. Yes, Parker was out for the season. He knew that all along. But the thought was, was that Griffin was supposed to be out maybe a month tops, maybe a little bit more. But right around now, we'd expect to see him back in a rotation. When Griffin's season ended, Chavez was kept in a rotation since the Athletics had no other options, but he's grabbed the opportunity and run with it, giving his team no chance to think twice. It's been an amazing story, one that has gotten very little attention, especially for a right-hand pitcher that had been with seven organizations in the past eight years. I certainly hope he continues to pitch well, because it, more are going to start to mention his determination to continue to pitch and work on his craft. It could have been so easy for Chavez to give up or just uh, accept himself as a reliever, a long reliever, a guy who's going to be a mop-up man. But he continued to work hard as a starting pitcher. And think about it. If he if he's making starts in a postseason for the Athletics this year, 29 other teams are going to think about the time in 2011 that they could have had Jesse Chavez for nothing. Props to the Athletics for finding Chavez, the same way they found a guy by the name of Bartolo Colon a couple of years ago. Yes, he came back and pitched fairly well for the Yankees that one season, but you know you thought it was a one-season wonder. You knew about the second half of the season where he did not pitch as well, but the Athletics took a chance on him, and Colon was fantastic for them last year. You see how he's pitching for the Mets this year. Uh, you could tell that the Oakland Athletics know what they're doing in regards to pitching. So a lot of props to their pitching coach, Curry Young, who, by the way, is a disciple from Dave Duncan and Tony La Russa to their days back in Oakland and learned a lot from Dave Duncan, not only as a pitcher, but as a as a guy who worked with Duncan as a coach for many, many years. So a, a great job there. And props to Curry Young, who's done a fantastic job as the pitching coach for the Oakland Athletics, and of course, Bob Melvin, the manager. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. A big thanks to Art Mahaffey for joining the program in this hour. Second hour, I'm going to be speaking to former Red Sox third baseman, Frank Malzone. and Frank was the first ever 
Gold Glove Award winner when they started giving the awards out in 1957 and played many years for the Boston Red Sox. Talks about some of his memories and things that happened in the game. And I'm also going to speak to former Yankees shortstop Jim Mason. And there's a very interesting thing that he's part of in regards to history and the World Series. So big thanks for everybody for tuning in. Be right back in five minutes. Passball show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. Rock over London. Rock over Chicago. Wheaties. Represent champions. 